If you would, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John. We are going to spend uh, just about all of our time today in John. Uh, we're going to be studying John chapter 7. Uh, I'm hoping to get all the way through into chapter 10. I'm going to be out of town next week, and Brother Bill is going to pick up for me. Uh, so if history holds true, whenever I'm not here, we're going to get caught up. And so that's, uh, that's, that's Bill's charge. But next week, we'll be transitioning over to Luke. And so I'm hoping to get through uh, all, of, all of the John text that we have to study, and then we're going to transition uh, to Luke. But we have, in, in our studies right now, we have made a transition. Uh, we have transitioned uh, from the Galilean ministry. Now we're into this period that's called the Perean or the Judean ministry. And, and I want to give us a little bit of context for what we're going to be studying about in John today. So think back a little bit to John chapter 2. So John chapter 2 and John chapter 5, these are the last two times that Christ has been in Jerusalem because he's been in Galilee. Remember, we talked about this period that's probably about two years long. He has been up in Galilee, in and around that area. He took a little bit of a break and he went even further northward. He went up to Tyre and Sidon. He went down south and east a little bit into that area of Decapolis, but he has not been in, uh, in Judea. He has not been in the Jerusalem area a lot. The two times that he did go are recorded for us in John chapter 2 and John chapter 5. So John chapter 2 is right there at the very beginning of his ministry, and he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. And a very important thing occurs there in that he cleanses the temple. So this is at the very beginning of his ministry, and this is a big, bold, introductory statement. And he's saying, listen, the religious order, the status quo cannot continue. This is not, this is not correct. We have to make radical changes, and I'm here to bring about those radical changes. As I was going back and reading this, I don't know that we looked at this verse when we studied John chapter 2, but it reminded me of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 and in verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. This was the introductory statement that he was making at the beginning of his ministry, that I am here to purge, I am here to refine, I am here to change. Again, Religion, as it stands now, is not correct. This is not how God intended it to be. That theme continues in John chapter 5. So this is probably about a year later. We're not told explicitly that this is the Passover, but it is a feast. And a lot of people think, kind of looking at the timeline, this was probably going to be a Passover. Not, not super important one way or another, but some time has passed. Uh, and he returns, most presumably for the Passover, and he heals a man on the Sabbath. If you remember, I think this was the week that Leland taught for me. This is in John chapter 5. This is the healing of that lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And again, a similar idea. It was not, that's what they were so frustrated with him with, for doing this work, supposedly, on the Sabbath. But again, he's saying, listen, the way that you're thinking, the way that you're going about things right now, that's, that's incorrect. If you're going to persecute me, if you're going to cry out to me for healing somebody on the Sabbath drastic changes need to occur. So when you go to chapter five, it's verse eight that he tells this man to rise, take up your bed and walk. He is highlighting their corrupted thinking. And when you come down to verse 16 and 18, you see that they seek to kill him for this. 
Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Well, he tells them in verse 17, listen, it's not just me that's doing work. My father, my father has been working until now and I've been working. Drives him even crazier. Verse 18, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. So this then gives him an opportunity to explain this. He goes on in the rest of chapter five to explain his deity. When you go down, uh, we'll just look at two verses. Verse 37, the father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Go down to verse 43. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. He uses this again as an opportunity to talk to them about where his authority comes from. Why is he doing these things? Why is he doing things that are contrary to these earthly traditions that they have set up for themselves? He's trying to get them to recognize, listen, change is coming and change has to occur. You cannot continue in this way. And I have the authority to bring these changes about. I'm the one that has been prophesied about in the Old Testament. I'm the one that is doing these things on behalf of my father. We're going to see a lot of the same in John chapter seven and following. Uh, I think we mentioned this just very, very briefly at the end of our last class, but now he's coming and it does tell us what feast this is. Uh, if John chapter five was a Passover, then we're about a year and a half later. Uh, this is the feast of tabernacles. Uh, sometimes it's called the feast of booze or the feast of in gatherings, but these little temporary shelters, uh, this is to remind them of a couple of things. Uh, it's to remind them of not only these temporary dwellings that they would live in, when they were wandering in the wilderness, it's also to remind them of these little gatherings that they would live in when they were going throughout the harvest. So when they were going to be harvesting day in and day out, they would have these little temporary shelters they would set up in the fields so that they could work, 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 go to this little tabernacle, this little shelter, this little booth, go back and work, work, work some more. But this is a period of time that's supposed to be getting the Jews to think about their reliance upon God. God is not only the one that led them and provided for them when they were in the wilderness, but he's the one that blesses them each year with the bounty of that harvest. So this is supposed to be a time that all these Jews are coming together. This was one of those big three festivals. All the Jews are going to be coming together and they're coming together to Jerusalem to worship, to think about what God has provided for them. What a perfect opportunity to think about the greatest blessing of all that God is going to provide for them. And that's there in Jesus. So if you're thinking about your timeline, this is October. We've got about six months until the crucifixion. If you think about from October until the Passover, we've got about six months. And this is really kind of the start of this time when he's going to be spending a lot of time in and around Jerusalem. So this is referred to as the Perean or the Judean ministry. So we've left Galilee. Now we're down here. A lot of the same things, the same themes are going to unfold. You're going to see a lot of parallels. If you remember our study from John chapter five and John chapter seven, eight, nine, in the first part of 10, uh, in, in chapter nine, just at the end of the feast, he's actually going to heal a man on the Sabbath. He's poking the bear again, <laughs> poking the bear again, just reminding them about how their thinking has gotten corrupted. Uh, the rulers are going to seek to kill him. This plan that they started maybe almost two years ago is only going to have, is only going to have uh, stoking to that fire. So if you look, and we'll just look at a couple of these verses because we're going to have to move through the chapters pretty quickly. But if you look in seven, seven and in verse 19, he actually brings it out to them. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? If you go to verse 31 of chapter seven, many of the people believed in him 
and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? When you go to verse 44, down in verse 44, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. And then when you go to chapter eight and in verse 59, eight and in verse 59, it says, then they took up stones to throw at him. So in these things that he is saying there, it's causing this division. Some people are believing. Some people are seeing the truth in his words and they're seeing the authority with which he speaks, but it's only driving others further away and driving them to try to kill him. He's going to do a lot of explaining about his deity. And it's all going to culminate in this grand statement in chapter 8 and verse 58. But he's talking about his deity and he's talking especially about his connection to the Father because that is the source of his authority. Let's let's very briefly look at a couple of verses and and then we'll hopefully talk about them as we go throughout the chapters. But chapter 7 and verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If you go down to verse 29, I know him, for I am from him. And he sent me, if you go to chapter eight and in verse 18, eight, verse 18, I am one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. Verse 23, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself but he sent me. And then verse 56 and in verse 58, these two grand statements, everything kind of building to this point. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Naturally, this causes a lot of questions. They say, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham in verse 57? Most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So this is what he's getting at. This is, this is this, this period of time, these couple of days of the feast and just after the feast. These are the things that he is trying to get them to think about. I am not just a man. I'm not just somebody who's trying to lead up a big movement. I'm not trying to start a new sect. You know, if you think about all these different sects of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the, the Zealots, the Essenes, that's not what he's here to do. I'm not here to just to start a new group. I am from God. I am the son of God. And I'm here to radically change everything and bring you into righteousness. Let's go through these chapters. And and, and I'd encourage you, if you have have any questions, if you have any comments, please, please put up a hand, slow me down. I'll I'll try to do my best uh, to stop and and ask for your comments because we're going to be covering a pretty large chunk. If you remember at the end of our study last week, uh, he goes and and who does he talk to? Who does he talk to right before the feast? That actually tries to goad him into going to Jerusalem. Yeah, it's his brothers. He, he encounters his brothers, and he's still up in the Galilean region. And his brothers say, hey, why don't you go to the, why don't you go to the feast? You know, if you're going to be talking to the people, that's a, great, that's a great chance to talk to a lot of people. And he says, my time has not come. And we pointed out, again, how, how sad it is that those that were closest to him were not yet supporters of his. But what he does is he goes a little bit later. He doesn't go with everybody else. He waits uh, I don't think we covered this, but there's, there's an, uh, I think it's in Mark's account. He actually goes through Samaria and he and the disciples, they go through to, through Samaria. So basically he's getting to the feast a little bit late and it sounds like people are asking where he is and just right in the middle of the feast, right in the middle of the temple, he shows up and he starts teaching. So there, there there's a lot of buzz clearly about, is Jesus going to come? This is, this is the topic of the day. <laughs> if you imagine whatever's on every single news channel right now. That's this. 
Jesus was the topic of the day, especially when you had Jews from all over, Jews from Galilee that had been with Jesus. They had probably seen the things that he had been doing for the past year and a half. They are coming to Jerusalem. They're talking about this and Jesus appears and he starts teaching. And it mentions there in verse 15 and 16, it says the Jews marveled and they said, how does this man know letters having never studied? We read this verse just a couple of minutes ago, but he says, I'll tell you how I know. This isn't coming from me. This is not some earthly knowledge that I've acquired on my own and now I'm dispensing to you. Verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And then, I think we said this just a minute ago, he goes right after them. Jesus, Jesus is bold, he is direct, and he says, listen, the message that I have for you is not originating from me. Again, this is not some new message where I'm trying to draw people away to myself. I am bringing you the truth that comes from God. And when I give you this truth that comes from God, your reaction is to try to kill me. He says that in verse 19. Why do you seek to kill me? Maybe the, the, the fallback response that they keep going back to is, oh, you've got a demon, <laughs> you know? That's what they say in verse 20. You've got a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? How ridiculous is that? They've clearly tried to kill him multiple times. And they say, oh, you know, who's, who's trying to kill you? Who's trying to kill you? No, he, he, goes, he goes right after them and he points it out. And then he points out their hypocrisy. Because again, what, what, is, what got them the first time to try to kill him was him doing a good work and healing somebody on the Sabbath. And so he points out the hypocrisy when he goes down to verse 23. He says, listen, you perform circumcision on the Sabbath. You know, if there was ever, if there was ever a work, I mean, that's a, that's a work right there. He says, 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? There, there, there's a contrast there. You are doing something on the Sabbath to fulfill the law, but you are cutting away. You, there's actually a separation that is taking place there. I come on the Sabbath and I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to heal. I'm trying to repair. And I'm sure it's not lost on them that he's pointing out the inconsistencies. And that's, and honestly, that's the only place that we're ever going to get when we use man's wisdom. When we use man's wisdom and we try to implement our own traditions and we add on to what God has taught, there are going to be inconsistencies. Because we are not able to come up with things that are are completely free uh, of any illogical holes. There's always going to be inconsistencies when it's left up to man. We're going to have this tradition to fit this time. We're going to have this work over here to suit this need. And as time goes on, when you step back and look at it, you're going to realize, wait, this doesn't doesn't match up with this. Just, Just look at all of the denominations today. All of the corruption and the perversion of God's word as things trickle a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. And how far they've changed. They're so inconsistent, not only with God's word, but many of these denominations and many of these things that have relied upon man's teaching and man's wisdom are inconsistent with themselves. Because they continue to keep up with the times and they continue to be perverted and corrupted to go along with man's wisdom. That's the only logical outcome that comes when you deviate from God's will. Well, the the crowds wonder at this. Again, he is cut right to the heart. He's pointed out the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the crowds wonder at that. But again, same, same thought verse 29, he says, listen, this is not, this is not coming from me. You shouldn't, you shouldn't marvel that you shouldn't marvel that this is, this is something so special. This is coming from the father. Verse 29, I know him, I am from him and he sent me. 
Well, the rulers, are, are, they just, they, they've got to try to put a stop to this. So verse 30, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We're going to see this again. His, his plan is not going to be thwarted. And when it is his time, he will submit and he will relent. But this whole idea that Christ's, Christ's mission was somehow thwarted by the Jews, that the Jews or the Roman government were able to outsmart him or they were able to stop him from accomplishing his purpose is just ridiculous. We've seen time after time that when it is his time, it will happen. And when it is not his time, it will not happen. If they want to capture him or they want to kill him or they want to stone him, they can't unless, unless he allows it. But he does tell them, and I think we brought this out last week, you are going to see a shift in that in these, in these chapters, in this period of time with just six months to go, he is going to be talking a lot about what is to come. He is trying to prepare the people. He's trying to prepare his disciples. He's even preparing his enemies for what is to come. I am not going to be here anymore. But I'm not going to be here anymore because you are going to somehow be successful in overthrowing my plan. This is my plan all along. And this is my plan because it comes from the father that I am not going to be with you. And so when you look, uh, I believe it's down there in verse 34, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And they, they still don't get it. Verse 35, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Is he going to go to the Gentiles and teach the Greeks? You know, they're, they're still not thinking uh, about what, what clearly is going to happen. But they're, they're just, you know, he's just laying, laying this groundwork here. Some, some beautiful passages, uh, verse 37, really down through uh, the end of the chapter. This is the last day of the feast. Jesus uses this beautiful imagery to invite the people. On verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We, we've seen him use these words and use these images several times before. Uh, in talking to the woman at the well. Uh, in talking about him being the bread of life after the feeding of the 5,000. He has used this imagery and I think he uses this, one, because it's going to grab their attention, but also because these are the same words that are used multiple times throughout the prophets. Uh, one that I thought of was, is in Isaiah 55. Uh, and Isaiah several times uses this idea of, of living water or coming to drink and eat. But Isaiah 55 and in verse 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. There is a wonderful invitation that is presented there. And again, think about who he is talking to. He's talking to those that are not of, uh, that, that are not of wealth. The daily sustenance of life was probably a really big deal for them. It was probably a big deal to think about having enough money to go buy food to eat and to make sure they had enough to drink. And so this wonderful invitation to come and to get water that would never run out, to get food that would never run out, that would not cost you anything. It would not cost you money at least, but to be able to come and to be eternally satisfied, filled and sustained. What a wonderful invitation. And that is exactly what Christ was offering them. He was offering something that was so much greater than the bread they would eat every day, than the water that they would drink. He was giving them something that would truly satisfy them. When we eat, I know at least when I eat, 
About an hour later, no, I'm, I'm hungry. I, I could eat again. Sometimes it's not even an hour. You know, when we eat, we have to keep doing it. We're never fully satisfied. Even sometimes the best meal. Think about the best meal you've had in your life. It, it wears off. It's great in the moment, but a couple hours go by and we're like, I could go for a bowl of cereal. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. We want to eat again. We're never going to be satisfied forever. Even when we've been outside working and we're hot and we're thirsty and we get that cool, refreshing drink of water. We can't go forever on that one drink of water. So he is offering them something that is going to last. Something beyond the greatest meal or the greatest drink they've ever had. Something that is going to sustain them, fill them forever. What a wonderful, wonderful invitation. And and it's no wonder. It's no wonder that the response to this is incredible. If you go to verse 41, it says, Others said, this is the Christ. When they see this invitation, when they pair up the imagery with what's presented in the prophets, they say, this has got to be it. This is the invitation that we were told would come. Someone would come along and they would offer this to us. And this is what this person is offering with the authority to do it. And verse 43 says, there's a division among the people. It says, verse 44, some wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. The authorities, these, the chief priests and, and the Pharisees that had sent these people to come get him. These people come back empty handed and they say, verse 45, why have you not brought him? And they said, no man spoke like this man. How are we supposed to take this guy? And so you can see the impact that he's having on everybody. Even Nicodemus, if you look in verse 51, Nicodemus tries to stick up for him. Uh, He says, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Nicodemus, this is the one that came to Jesus by night. There's, there's this wonderful backstory when you think about Nicodemus who comes to Christ in secret. Now you see him edging out just a little bit more. He's willing to speak up publicly. And then who at the very end is there to take the body with Joseph of Arimathea? It's Nicodemus, right? So it's this individual that's making a progression, I, I think, in his faith, willing to be a little bit more bold and a little bit more bold. And of course, we don't know what else was going on at that time. But just as the scriptures reveal to us here, he is willing to stand up and say, Listen, there's a reason this person is saying these things. Maybe we should listen to him. Maybe we should have an open mind. Maybe we should go back to the Old Testament scriptures and see. Because they're still, they're still thinking, you know, what, is it, what does it say there? Uh, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. They haven't even done their homework to see where Jesus truly comes from. And Nicodemus is there to try to provide that voice of support, but, but that voice uh, falls on a little bit of deaf ears. Uh, let, let me pause. Let me pause for just a second. Does anybody have any thoughts or any comments on chapter seven? Okay, let's go to chapter eight then. Uh, this is the feast is now over. Okay, the feast is over. So this is the next day after the feast. Uh, early in the morning, he comes again to the temple. So he's going back, back to where he just was. Uh, there, there's a lot of boldness there, a lot of confidence. When he knows these people want to kill him, they've sent people to try to capture him, to stop him from teaching, but he's not going to be stopped. He goes back early in the morning to the temple, and we see that the the scribes and the Pharisees here, they they try to set a trap for him, as they so often do. Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't say that it's it's boldness on their part, maybe just foolishness. I don't know how many times you need to fail (laughs) to realize that you're not going to trap this individual, but... uh, I mean, that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing every time and expecting something different to happen. But again, they think this time we, we've got a way to trap him. And they are bringing him this woman who has been caught in adultery. And they might have a couple of intentions there. Maybe it's just to see, is he actually going to hold to the commandments of the old law? 
Maybe it's actually just a popularity thing. Maybe they understood that Jesus was so popular with the common people. And for him to voice support for publicly killing someone would harm his popularity. So either way, it seems like they are trying to put him in what they think is an impossible situation. They are trying to get him to publicly endorse stoning this woman who has been caught in sin. And there's probably a lot more there, too. There's a lot of things that suggest that, uh, you know, you mentioned they they don't bring the man who who was caught in adultery. Um, you know, maybe they themselves, uh, had somehow been implicated in this. There's a lot, there's a lot else that's there, but they have tried to present an impossible situation for him. And Jesus, as always, definitely handles it without, without going against the law. So, so if you look there, uh, in verse seven, he actually doesn't even respond to them at first, which is, which is incredible. He just continues, he just continues what he's doing. He's writing on the ground with his finger. Verse seven, they continued asking him. He raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, verse nine, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. He didn't contradict the law. He didn't condone what this woman had done. He didn't say, you know what? No, the the, law is wrong on that. Adultery is really not that bad. You should let her slide this time. He said, all right. He said, if you're going to convict her, the one, the one that has, the one that has no sin, go ahead and pick up that stone and start. As, As a side note, I cannot imagine stoning somebody. If you think about what was commanded in the old law and it was fairly extreme to go out as a group of individuals and to pick up a stone and stone somebody. That's, that's pretty tough. That, that's not a quick process. That is a process that you are playing a very long, prolonged role in. Uh, hey, hey, Dale, can we, get a, can we get a microphone back to Tolly? Um, you, you are playing a role in this, and you are watching somebody die. It's, it's not a quick process. There's a group of you that is throwing stones at somebody for a prolonged period of time until they pass away. That's... That's pretty rough. That is pretty rough. And it's supposed to make a big impact. It is supposed to make an impact. And that's why it's reserved for eradicating some of these sins. Yeah, Tolly. And isn't it the accuser is the first one to cast the stone? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's like you have to really be careful what you accuse people of because you're going to be the first one. Yeah. That's a big burden to kill, you know, to have to start in the process of killing that person. And I think that that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I think you put it better than I did. There is a big burden upon the people that are going to do this. And I think what this is, if you kind of take up and you've got, a, you've got a little micro picture here, back up to the macro, what is it that the Pharisees have done? Why are they such hypocrites? Is that they have accused people of not keeping all these little ticky-tack traditional traditions that they've come up with, and they are omitting these huge swaths of the law. They have completely abandoned large chunks of the law and said, yeah, but you know what? We are going to do this and this and this. And we're, and so that's, I feel like that's what he's really getting at here. There is a huge burden of proof. And I think Tolly put it better than, better than I did. There is a huge burden of proof. If you are going to convict somebody of sin, and then you are going to carry out the punishment for that sin. And they were in no place. They were in no place to be the ones to do that. But then again, I think he he handles both sides of this equation perfectly because he does not excuse the woman. When he stands up in verse 10, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Your, your sin, your sin's not excusable. You know, this, this is not, it's not because it's okay, but I think he's getting at that bigger picture, trying to let the people know just who the Pharisees are in comparison to him. Who is the one that has the ability to come and to convict of sins? It is the one that is righteous and one that has come from the father, not these individuals that have put themselves in this place of power that are doing so hypocritically. And he says there in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Seeing clearly, seeing righteousness for what it truly is. Okay. As you continue on now, he's got another opportunity. So when he does these things, these always lead to opportunities to teach. Um, so you think about this as you go on the next couple of, uh, Ooh, Hey Dale, can you, I think the battery just ran out. Uh, can you, can you move on to the next one? And maybe, uh, if somebody could get me two batteries, I'd appreciate that. Um, sorry about that guys. So as he, uh, as, as you go on there, they're, they're coming to him and they say, the Pharisees say to yourself, you bear witness of yourself, but your witness is not true. Now this, this is going to fall on its face for, for a couple of reasons. Um, he is not just coming as we've already said earlier, he's been telling them all along. I'm not just saying this on my own accord. Not only have I shown you in several ways, but you know, there are, there are multiple things that have borne witness of me. And this is very similar. Thank you very much, Dale. I appreciate that. This is very similar to John chapter five, verses 31 through 47, John chapter five, verses 31 through 47. You know, he gives this, this multifaceted argument for why he is not there bearing witness of himself. The Old Testament scriptures have testified of them. He has gone to great pains to point back to the Old Testament prophecies. John testified of him. John came to pave the way before him, also prophesied. John testified of him. The father has testified of him. And that's what he talks about here. Uh, when you look, when you look in, in some of those verses that we read earlier, verse 19, uh, verse 18, I am one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. And he has performed miracles to demonstrate his authority. So this argument that he's just there bearing witness of himself falls, falls on its face. Uh, but again, the next couple of verses, as you go, as you go on beyond that verses 21 through 30, he goes back to that idea. Listen, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be leaving. You're not going to understand these things yet, but when would they understand all these things that are happening? What's going to happen that's going to crystallize everything for them? Yeah, the Holy Spirit's going to come and it's going to happen after he's been lifted up in verse 28. Verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself, but as my father taught me, I speak these things. So this crystallizing event, right now they're doubting that he is deity. They're doubting that he came from the father. The one event that is going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt is that he is going to be crucified on that cross. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to die. And he's going to, he's going to, be, uh, he's going to be raised again. And when they see that, verse 28, that should, that, that should, eliminate, that should eliminate all doubts for those, for those that are on the fence. Verses 31 down through, down through following. <clears throat> Verses 31 and following uh, present some, some very familiar passages to us. Verse 31 says, If you abide in my word... You are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Uh, two, two beautiful things there. Uh, you know, if you, if you're like me, you probably immediately think of Romans chapter six and we think about the freedom that is presented to us from sin. 
When we are in sin, we are in bondage. For these individuals, under the old law, they are in bondage. They are in bondage under the old law. Christ is going to be the one that is going to come and he is going to provide them. He is going to provide them freedom from that freedom from this old covenant that does not have the ability to fully remove sins. That's what Hebrews talks about freedom from being bondage in sin, living a life in sin that has no hope of eternity. But what I also like is that when you go back to the very beginning of John, Jesus himself is truth. He embodies that truth. Go back to John chapter one and in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Go down to verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is truth. And it is by Jesus that he is the one that is going to be setting us free. So this statement has so so many different layers to it. And, And at the end of our study today, when we talk about Jesus being the shepherd, He's going to mention how not only is he the shepherd, he is also the door. He is our access and he is the one that leads us through that door. Very similarly, he is the one that provides the truth that allows us to break free from not only their slavery to the Old Testament, our slavery to sin, but he himself is the one that acted and did that. He is the one that provides that access. He is, he is truth. Um, they are still just so focused on killing him as he presents these things to them. Uh, he's talking about the slave. They're like, no, no, who, who are you talking to? We're not in slavery. Now back up big picture. This is probably a little bit of a touchy subject. You think about the historical context of what's going on. What has just happened for the previous couple hundred years, tons and tons of fighting, big period of national pride when the Jewish nation was able to really have some, some military victories over the Greeks, that whole period of the Maccabeans and the Hyrcanus, all all that, they were able to keep this measure of independence. And now even under Rome, they've got this measure of independence. Yes, they're under Pilate, but you start talking about slavery. That's a touchy subject. It's a touchy subject for these individuals. And so immediately saying, well, Hey, you're not talking to slaves here. You're, you're, You're talking, you're talking to free men. You know, we're the descendants of Abraham. You know, we're we're not under bondage anymore. We left Babylon. No, think bigger. You are under bondage. As we've already said, you're under bondage to an old covenant that cannot truly take away your sins. And you are in sin and you are in bondage to that sin. And and they, they just, they just can't get past that. They're so focused. They're so focused on killing him. And he addresses that again in verse 37. And he points out in verse 44 that these actions align them with the devil. You are not descendants of Abraham when you act this way. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. He is telling them what they are going to do. You claim to be from Abraham. You claim to be from God, but you're not acting like it. And so he, uh, as you go throughout this, He gives them this challenge at the end. And and I love this challenge. When you come to the very end, verses 46, there's this beautiful parallel between the very beginning of the chapter, his interaction with them, with this woman that is caught in adultery. And he says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. If you're going to convict her, you who are without sin, convict this woman. In, In a lot of ways, he presents the same challenge to them in verse 46. Which of you convicts me of sin? You couldn't convict that woman of sin. Can you convict me of sin? Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? But if I'm not, 
If I'm not sinning, if you were convicted in your hearts, when you stopped and could not pick up that rock and stone that woman, why will you not believe now when I've shown you the truth? Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. I can't, I can't imagine being, being the Pharisees, being the scribes, being these people, and just at every turn, every time, you, I mean, he, he just, he's just piercing them, just piercing them over and over and over again. The, the logic is so airtight, and they've got to see these examples. They've got to see the connection between these things. They couldn't convict that woman because they knew they had sin in their life. Jesus is showing them, if you can't convict her, you can't convict me. I'm bringing you the truth. And if you can't convict me, you can't walk away like you did with her. You have got to act on it. And they are going to act on it, but uh, sadly, that action is not, is not what we would hope it would be. Uh, he gives them the straightforward challenge. I just mentioned that. Uh, we mentioned the parallel to the adulterous woman. But this is, again, uh, we were talking about this is culminating as we go to the end of this. He's still teaching them. He's still talking about his deity. <laughs> they just, they fall back. It's, it's almost pitiful in a way. He gives them this straightforward challenge. And they say, well, you're, you're a Samaritan and you're a demon. <laughs> that's, that's all they got. That's all they've got. You're a Samaritan and you're a demon. We don't have anything better to, we don't have anything better to counter. And there, there really is nothing to counter. He said, I'm not a demon. I'm going to provide you just the opposite. Where a demon would, uh, you think about that man, that legion, that individual that, that was just captured by the demon. He had no freedom. He said, no, I'm actually providing you freedom. I'm providing you eternal life. Um, and and they, they, kind of, they kind of bristle at that. They point out, they say, listen, Abraham and the prophets, these faithful men, verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And he tells them, we've already read those words, verses 56, verses 57, and verse 58. Uh, verse 58 had to just, I mean, just a broadside, right hook, right across the face. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you didn't get it before now, when you say the words, I am, there is no doubt who he is saying he is. You go back all the way to God's response. God's response to Moses. Who should I tell? Who should I tell the people that you are? Tell them the I am has sent you. I think it's interesting. This should not be a surprise to them. When you go to Micah, go back to, go back to that, that prophecy in Micah, Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And the people knew this. This is what I think is interesting. It, it's not, it's not that, that far earlier. You know, they're talking about how, you know, the, the Messiah is not going to come from Galilee. The Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. They know the prophecy in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, but what's at the end of Micah 5 2? You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And who is this one? Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, literally everlasting, meaning from the days of eternity. Should it be any surprise that one who is coming to them saying that he is the Messiah? is also saying that he is the one who is from eternity. He is the one who is from everlasting. His goings forth are from of old. It should not surprise them in the slightest that he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. But at this point, I feel like they're just, they're so far gone. They're so far gone. They're not making these connections. They're not thinking logically. They're just, they're just dug in. And so, so they, they use that earthly wisdom. Verse 59, they take up stones to throw at him. So they finally get to the point where they are ready to convict and they pick up those stones to throw at him. 
But it says, again, very similar to what happened in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 and verse 30. He just walks away. He says, Jesus, uh, it says he hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed on by. Just miraculously said, nope, not my time. Not my time for this right now. I'm going to leave. Any thoughts? Uh, we've got just a couple of minutes left, and we'll try to, uh, try to do chapter 9 a little bit of justice. A- any thoughts on what we read in chapter 8? Certainly some pretty consequential verses there. All right, as we go into chapter 9, as we go into chapter 9, he takes the opportunity. Now this is the Sabbath day. Uh, it says that he sees this individual uh, who is blind, and it mentions that, he's, uh, mentions that he'd been blind since birth in chapter 9 and verse 1. And his disciples ask him this question. They say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And this is a, a, common, a common misconception of the day, that if you had some kind of physical ailment, your physical ailment was linked inextricably to your spiritual state. And that either your parents had sinned or you had sinned, and that's why this evil has come upon you. And he says, that's not the case. This is going to be an opportunity for me to do good works. And so he does this good work on the Sabbath. He, he heals this man. Again, a very different way. Jesus has demonstrated that he has got no restrictions on how he heals. He spits in the dirt. He makes a little bit of clay. He rubs it in this guy's eyes. And he says, now go wash. And so just like Naaman, in faith, going and washing, this man does the same. He goes to the pool of Siloam. He washes and he has his sight restored to him. Um, and so then he's brought to the Pharisees. Uh, he's brought to the Pharisees and he recounts what happens. And this causes a division. Again, they see the power that Jesus has, the authority that he has to do these miracles, but they don't believe until the parents come down in verse 18. The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they had called the parents of him who received his sight. Uh, so the parents say, listen, you know, yeah, he's been blind since birth and now he's not. So they go to this guy and they say, well, how, how did that happen? How did that happen? And there's this beautiful contrast. Uh, if you skip down a little bit, um, go to verse 30. The man answered and said to them, this is a marvelous thing. I, I can almost see it's just in some ways, it's just funny to me. You've got all these guys. They just can't get it. They can't get it. And here's this person who has been a blind beggar virtually his entire life. And he says, what a marvelous thing in verse 30. You do not know where he is from yet. He has opened my eyes. Obviously the physical sense he gave him sight, but also this man, this blind beggar, he has opened his eyes to the truth about who Jesus really is. Verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who is born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. We've talked about that, that beautiful parallel between blindness and sight. And there are these individuals that are the least among us, the least in this world that had their eyes opened, both physically had their eyes opened, but also spiritually had their eyes opened to the truth of who Jesus was. And just with the minute that we have left, um, let's go to chapter 10 and let's just think about two things real quick. And then I'll let, I'll let Bill kind of clean the rest of that up for me next week. Chapter 10 verses one through 21, Jesus is going back to that same thing that he started with. I'm not here to create a new sect. I'm not here to lead a bunch of people away and lead some big rebellion. I'm not here to trick and deceive the people. I'm here to tell you the truth. And I'm telling you the truth about who I am, that I'm from God. And the vast majority of people that are coming after me and believing me, that should testify to this. But he tells them in verse nine, that he is both the door 
and he's the shepherd. We talked about this previously. He is the one who gives us access, access to the father, access to salvation, access to eternal life. And he is also the one who leads us through that door. Uh, We don't have time to look at these verses, uh, but Ephesians chapter two, if you'd look at that verses 14 through 18, talking about how Christ is our peace. He is the one that has broken down that middle wall of separation and has reconciled us to the father. But also Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11, how he is the shepherd. He is the one that leads us through. Once access has been provided, he is the one that leads us through and no one else can do it. No hireling, nobody else, only the true shepherd. Thank you for your time. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I'll let Bill clean up a little bit on, on chapter 10 there. And then please plan next week, Luke chapter 10, 11, and 12. Luke 10, 11, and 12. Thank you.